Welcome back to The Wrestling Room and grab your Bible. We're going to jump into it again. But I want to share this. When you know the inner workings, the inner workings of anything, it and you dive below the surface into the, the, the essence of whatever it may be that you're studying or, or, or learning about, it raises your fascination, it raises your amazement, it raises your appreciation for, for whatever that may be. Let me give you an example. About 10 years ago, I endeavored to become an EMT, an emergency medical technician. Now, I quickly abandoned that pursuit because that kind of income would never support a family of five in Seattle, I learned very quickly. But in the process, I started the study and learned about the 11 systems of the body how they cooperate with one another and coordinate with one another and work in perfect harmony to keep the equilibrium of the body and keep the body working at, at its highest functioning level. And as I learned about this, my mind was just blown. I was fascinated. Of course, it gave me the ability to uh, converse with my wife, who is a nurse, also fascinated with anatomy and physiology. But what I found is, again, when you learn the inner workings of something, you get below the surface, what's going on behind the curtain, it just raises your fascination and raises your appreciation. And that is precisely what I want to do when I teach the scripture. And I want to read two more two verses that I've read the last couple of weeks. And I want to do make one final observation uh, from Acts chapter 1, verse 7, during this message. The disciples were asking Jesus, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Jesus is about ready to ascend back into heaven. He's been raised from the dead. And having the last conversation with his disciples before he goes back into heaven, they ask the big question again, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is it now that you're going to fulfill all these prophecies that have been written in the Old Testament that we have heard since childhood? And Jesus, again, kind of gives them the stiff arm, and he says, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And there are a couple things we learn from this verse. Number one, that God the Father is the one who has all sovereignty over time. He holds the stopwatch of time in, the, in his right hand. He is the manager of time. But the second thing we learn is that he has certain events fixed by his own authority, which tells us that in his left hand, he holds the master calendar of all of time. So he holds the stopwatch in his right hand, the master calendar in his left hand. God the Father oversees time, oversees the events of time. Now, I want to stop and just make a quick application. We live in a world filled with fear. You can be confident God is in full control. Stopwatch in one hand, master calendar in the other, and sovereign power to do whatever he wants to do. God is in control. God is in charge. <laughs> now, what is the arena in which God operates when it comes to time? And in this verse, we have two different words that give us two dimensions of time that God works within. Let me read it again. Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs. Now, let me explain those verses. This is very important. Times is the word chronos in the Greek. 
Epox is the word kairos in the Greek. Kronos times kairos, epox. Kronos means a long or even a short space of time. Kairos means a definite point in time. So let me elaborate. Kronos means seasons of time, whereas kairos means snapshots. Click, one snapshot of time. Kronos means intervals, hours, days, weeks. Kairos is events. Kronos, months. Kairos, moments. And you get the point. Kronos is the climb up the mountain. Kairos is the summit. Kronos is the baby is developing in the womb. Kairos, the baby is born. The baby is birthed. So let me just give a little bit more insight into to what Kairos might be in the practical realm of our lives. In, second, or in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8 and verse 11, you know this passage, but Solomon is writing and he says this, There is an appointed time, that is kairos, a fixed or divinely set time for everything. And there is a time, under, a time for every event under heaven. Then he goes on to give many, many uh, examples of this, and I'll give you just a few. He says, a time to give birth and a time to die. So kind of the two bookends of our lives. Those are kairos moments, our birth and our death. Then he says, a time to plant and a time to uproot, uproot what is planted. It's gardening season right now. And my wife is actively in our yard planting flowers. She's actually a little bit past the planting season. She's now tending them. But the fruit is coming, the kairos moment when we pick the fruit. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, and on and on and on. These are all kairos moments. It ends by saying there's a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And then Solomon ends in verse 11, he says this, God has made everything perfect, appropriate, beautiful. The word is all, has all those connotations, has made everything appropriate, perfect, beautiful in its time. In its time. And so those are all kairos moments. Now, what are some examples of chronos? Seasons. In the largest sense, you have two major chronos seasons. The Old Testament from creation, which is a kairos moment, to the first coming of Jesus, another major kairos moment. In between those two is a long span, a long season that we call the Old Testament, all the years before Jesus. Then you have the kairos moment of Jesus' first coming and the major span, the chronos season, to the second coming of Jesus. And so two mega, if you will, chronos seasons. Now, what are some examples of kairos, mega kairos moments? As I already said, creation, first coming of Jesus, second coming of Jesus, major, major kairos moments. And so you see that God the Father orchestrates all that he does in time with his master calendar within chronos seasons of time, and kairos moments of time. 
God is working specifically and individually in chronos seasons and kairos moments. And your own life, if you look back, if you took a piece of paper, you could graph, you could chart, you could write out a sketch of your own life, chronos seasons, kairos moments. <laughs> chronos seasons, kairos moments. And see how God was working in your own personal life through the seasons of your life and the moments of your life. Now, I want to make six very practical applications of, from the insights of these two dimensions of time. Grab your pen, grab your paper, and here we go. Number one, chronos may seem often like delay, but it's not delay. It's about development. Kairos is about deployment. I'm going to say that again. Kronos may seem like delay, but it's about development. Kairos, the Kairos moments, are about deployment when you're sent into battle. Someone once said this, Delay never thwarts God's purposes. It merely polishes his instrument. And this is God's divine order. He polishes, then he presents. He prepares and then he puts us in the game. And often we're not going to feel like we're ready to be put into the game. We, we say, Lord, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And I don't have all my ducks in a row. I don't have all my gifts fully developed. I, I, I'm experiencing fear. And God says, no, you're ready. You're ready. My power is perfected in your weakness. I'm not going to get you so ready that you don't need me. So God will put us in the game, but he polishes and then he presents. He prepares and then he puts us in. And that is God's divine order. And so many people want to be put into the game before they've been polished. They want to be, they want to be presented before they have been properly prepared. And God's order is not like that. That is not how God works. Waiting time, brothers and sisters, is not wasted time if you're being polished. So first application is simply this. Kronos may seem like delay, but it's about preparation. And then he's getting ready to put you in the game and deploy you. Second application. Kronos, seasons of time, are about developing faithfulness. Faithfulness, which always precedes fruitfulness. I sow good seed before I reap a good crop. I had a dear friend of mine that I worked with years ago and you would walk into his office and it was fairly sparsely decorated, but on one wall, the south wall, there was a big poster that read, faithful, 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 dot, 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 fruitful. Faithful, 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 dot, 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 fruitful. And I have never, ever forgotten that. And that simple statement is so profound because that's how God works. When we're in a chronos season, it's about developing faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now listen to these scriptures. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian believers and he says this. Men ought to view us. They ought to identify us. They ought to look at us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, I want to stop there before I proceed. I want to ask you a very pointed question. When people think about you, 
if they are asked by somebody else about you and how to identify you, how to describe you, have you lived your life in such a way that they would describe you, maybe not in these words, but in some way, shape, or form as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God? In other words, they know that you are a Jesus man, that you are a Jesus woman. Could they, would they identify you as such? Paul says men ought to view us, ought to identify us. When they see us, what do they see? Jesus man, Jesus woman. <laughs> And if that isn't true of you, brother or sister, your light is being put under a bushel. Your light is not shining brightly. God says that we are to be a city set on a hill, that our light is to shine brightly so that all men may see our good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. Our life is to glorify Jesus. People are to know that we're Jesus men, Jesus women. We're people of the book. We're people of the, of the one who was crucified, buried, and rose again. So Paul says men ought to view us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Then he says this. Now it is required of a steward that they be found faithful. Faithful. A steward is one who manages another person's possessions or property. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a steward. You are managing the gospel. You are managing relationships. If God has given you a family, you are managing children. If you're a husband, you're managing a wife. If you're a wife, you're managing the relationship with your husband. And there are many other things that we could talk about that God has given you to manage that are his possessions. But it's it says this, now it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Because in Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23, when we stand before Jesus, this is the test. Were we faithful? And the words we want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful servant. Faithful servant. Now, what is faithfulness? What is faithfulness? Faithfulness Literally in the Greek language, and it doesn't take a rocket science to figure this out, is trustworthiness, reliability. If you're faithful, you are able to be given a task and then carry it out to completion. Faithful people finish. Faithful people start, but faithful, faithful people finish. And people can put their confidence in you. God can put his confidence in you because he knows you're a finisher. Paul said in, in 2 Timothy, he said, I've fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. That is the epitome of faithfulness. I fought a good fight. I finished the task that God has given me. And I kept my faith. I kept my faith. Now, what is the opposite of faithfulness? If you look in Matthew chapter 25, when he talks about the parable of the stewards that are given five talents, two talents, and one talent, the gentleman who was given one talent, he went and buried it out of fear. Fear is the contrast to faithfulness. Fear and faithfulness are contrasting to one another. Now, if you, you would have asked me, what is the opposite of faithfulness? I probably wouldn't have told you fear until I read that parable. And instead of being faithful, he was fearful. Now, here is a radical thought. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, 
It gives a list of those people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They will not be in the new heaven and the new earth. They will be cast into the lake of fire. And the first characteristic on the list, here's what Jesus says. But the cowardly and the unbelieving, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The word cowardly means someone who is timid, who is ruled by dread and fear, and it describes those who give way, give up under persecution, and abandon the faith. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, In the end times, many who profess to know Jesus will abandon the faith. There'll be an apostasy, a falling away of believers. And so faithfulness means that I start and I finish. I carry out to completion the task, task that God has given me. That is what Jesus is looking for in us. So chronos is about developing faithfulness, and it always precedes fruitfulness. I sow good seed, I reap a good crop. Faithful, 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 fruitful. It always goes in that order. So, number, number three. Number three. Faithfulness is almost always formed in obscurity. So the chronos is about building faithfulness, but that faithfulness is almost always born in obscurity. Chronos seasons in our lives are often seasons where we're kind of off the grid. We're not out in front of the big crowd. We're off the grid. It's often a time of seclusion and of privacy and of quietness and obscurity. I love the story about the Beatles. When they came to the United States, they exploded almost instantly. And if you didn't know their backstory, you wouldn't realize that they had spent countless hours in Germany and in Liverpool down in a basement honing their skills to crowds that were, you could, you could almost count them on one hand, tiny little crowds, doing gigs with virtually nobody there in a pub in Germany for several years. Their story is fantastic, but they were born and honed in obscurity, and then they came to the United States, and they had been polished, now they were presented. <laughs> and in our spiritual lives, that's the same way God works. Think of Moses. At age 40, he stood up and he said, I'm going to deliver the people of Israel. He had a warrior's heart. The book of Acts describes him as a mighty warrior, but he didn't have a shepherd's heart. And so God had to take him out in the backside of nowhere for 40 years to build, in addition to his warrior's heart, to build a shepherd's heart because he was going to lead several million people who were so obstinate, so stubborn, just like sheep always running off, always wandering, they needed a leader with a shepherd's heart because we know Moses had a temper and God had to temper his temper with a shepherd's heart. He had to teach him how to lead sheep. Now, in contrast, you have David, the young man David, the teenager David, who had a shepherd's heart. But God had to take him on the backside of nowhere, out in the field to develop a warrior's heart. So what did he do? He brought a bear, he brought a lion, and eventually he brought Goliath. He was polished on the backside of nowhere and then presented in front of the whole nation with Goliath. 
And this is what God does. He takes us into obscurity. Someone once told me this. When God is building faith, he expands your territory. When God is building character, he restricts your territory. And boy, do I know this very, very personally. When character is an issue, God will restrict your, your territory to build your character. And then once character is built, he expands your territory and he builds your faith. So faithfulness is almost always formed in obscure, obscurity. Now, somebody might say, I feel like God has completely forgotten me. He's not just taken me to the backside of nowhere. He's dumped me there and he's left me. I want to read a statement by Christine Kane. She's an Australian speaker and I love this statement. She said this, sometimes when you're in a dark place and you think you've been buried, you've actually been planted. In other words, when you think you're in a coffin, the reality is you're in a garden box. You're in a garden box. And that is our story. And I don't have time in this teaching to share it all. But for the last 14 years, there have been so many times we felt, and I've allowed myself to believe that I was in a coffin, that I was dead, that God was done with me. But he hadn't buried me. He had planted me and I've been in a garden box. Our family has been in a garden box. Our marriage has been in a garden box and God is getting ready to bear fruit through our lives again. And we've been planted. We haven't been buried. We've been planted. And when God, again, when God is going to do a work in us to build faithfulness, often it's in obscurity and we feel like everything is dark and that we've been buried. No, we've been planted. We've been planted, but a seed planted can't be seen above the surface, right? It's obscure under the ground, but it's not going to stay under the ground. It bursts out from the ground with incredible fruitfulness. So, number three, faithfulness is almost always formed in obscurity. In obscurity, but I want to give you number four. Faithfulness is not only formed in obscurity, it's formed in the mundane of life in the grind of life. It's formed in the grind of life. Now, the chronos ordinary, get this, this is vital, the chronos ordinary, the ordinary of the seasons of life, the grind of life, produces the kairos extraordinary. The chronos ordinary, the grind, the daily routines of life produce the moments of extraordinary. The Kronos daily routines create the Kairos divine appointments. Get this. The Kronos daily routines create the Kairos divine appointments. U.S. Senator Dan Coates made some very powerful observations, and I want to read them to you. Here's what he said. He said, character cannot be summoned at the moment of crisis if it has been squandered by years of compromise and rationalization. The only testing ground for the heroic is the mundane. The only preparation for that one profound decision which can change a life or even a nation is those hundreds of half-conscious, self-defining, seemingly insignificant decisions made in private. Habit 
is the daily battleground of character. The heroic is forged in the mundane. Brothers and sisters, do not forget this. The chronos mundane results in the kairos heroic. The kairos, the chronos mundane results in the kairos heroic. Because faithfulness is formed in obscurity and faithfulness is forged in the mundane. And here's a final PS to this fourth point, and that is this. The chronos mundane must be embraced. You've got to embrace it. Most people push back against it. It's abrasive. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 9, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. In the Greek, that means don't throw up the white flag. Don't surrender. Don't give up. That's what that literally means. Because it says this, at just the right time, the kairos moment, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So in the first line, he says, don't get tired of doing what is good. That in the Greek means don't throw up the white flag. <laughs> don't quit. Because just at the right time, you will reap a harvest of blessing if you don't give up. In the Greek, that literally means sit down and take your shoes off. The thought of giving up is sitting down and taking your shoes off. In other words, I'm done with this journey. I'm done with this hard road. The wide road is so easy and there's so many walking on it, but Lord, you've called me to a narrow road. It's steep. It's rocky. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take my shoes off and I'm done. The chronos mundane, the grind has to be embraced. It's time intensive. It requires perseverance. Don't throw up the white flag. Don't sit down and take off your shoes. Keep walking, brother and sister. Keep walking because the promise of God is just at the right time, at that kairos moment, you will reap a harvest if you don't take your shoes off. Don't quit. Blessing is coming. Blessing is coming. Now, here's the last, uh, the fifth, and then we got one more after this. Number five, the kairos moments must, must be seized. They must be redeemed. The kairos moments must be seized. They must be redeemed. They are time sensitive. Kronos seasons are time intensive. You've got to have perseverance. But kairos moments are time sensitive. They require strategic thinking. They, re they require courage. And they require initiative. Get this. This is so important. Benjamin Disraeli, who served two terms as the Prime Minister of England, he was famous for this quote, and I love it. I've written it in the flyleaf of my Bible. It says this, The secret of success in life is for a man or woman to be ready for his or her opportunity when it comes. The secret of success in life is for a man or woman to be ready for his or her opportunity when it comes comes, when it presents itself. Now, here's where the scripture talks about this. Ephesians 5, 15 through 18. This is the classic passage of scripture 
that discusses kairos moments. And here's what Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers. He says this, so be careful how you live. That literally means watch over your life. Be a watcher of your life. Observe how you are living. Don't live with your eyes closed. (laughs) Don't just blunder and stumble through life. Open your eyes. Watch yourself. Be a watcher of your own life. Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. In the Greek, that means don't live as unskilled novices who have not cultivated their minds. Brothers and sisters, we we accept Jesus by faith, but God appeals to the mind of a believer over and over and over and over. The scriptures were written for the mind and then to activate the heart to step out in faith. And this verse is saying, observe your life. Don't live like those who are foolish, who are unskilled novices, who have not cultivated their minds. On the other hand, live like those who are wise. Live like experts who have cultivated their minds. This means that I'm to be a student of Scripture. I'm to be a student of myself, and I'm to be a student of life, and I'm to be a student of Scripture. Then it says this, Why do I live carefully? Why do I cultivate my mind? Why do I become an expert in life? Because of this next thought. It says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Another version says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, what does that mean? That means that at the end of these seasons, these chronos seasons of preparation, there is a moment. It is a window that opens and then closes. It's a coupon that has an expiration day. It's an opportunity that God gives you to use what you've you've learned in preparation in the game. The game, it's game time. And God is saying these windows of opportunity, you've got to be strategic about them. You've got to take initiative and you need courage. That's why Paul said to pray for me that I may preach the word with boldness as I ought to preach. When God opens these windows of opportunity, we've got to strategically step into them with courage and initiative and grab them up. Grab them up. Let me give you an uh, an illustration of this. I practice on a daily basis prayer walking. I have about a 35-minute circuit that I walk, and I was visiting my parents in Southern Oregon about a month and a half ago, and I I had created a 35-minute circuit that I walked. It was actually to a coffee shop and then back home. I got coffee and walked home and had had multiple purposes for it, prayer being the first, but coffee being the second. And as I walked to the coffee shop, I was just within eyeshot of the coffee shop, and I, it, there was a team of people working off to the side of the road. Now, in southern Oregon, if you, if you remember, there were some incredible fires about eight months ago that devastated over 3,000 3, homes, burned them to the ground, and over 100 businesses. And there was a team of people who were cleaning up a burn site. And there was a lady who was the flagger on the road, and as I walked by, as I walked up and was headed to my coffee shop, I stopped and began to ask her, what are you guys doing? And she shared in detail what they were doing and some of the stories of the actual property they were working on. Uh, Incredible. 
So we talked for a little bit and then I said, well, I need to go. And I headed to the coffee shop, got my coffee and was on my way back. And the spirit of God prompted me, when you walk by this lady, her name was Michelle, tell her that you're on a prayer walk and ask her if there's anything you can pray for, for her. And so I did business in my heart because that was breaking out of my comfort zone. And I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. And I walked back up to her on my way back. And I just said, hey, Michelle, you know, I'm on a prayer walk. And um, I do this frequently during the day. And, and is there anything while I'm walking and praying that I could pray for you about? And she looked at me and you could just see this, this moment in her spirit. And she said, it's funny that you would ask. And then she dumped the dump truck and she poured out from the deepest part of her heart the story of her alcoholic son who had a small child and a girlfriend in another state and how he was squandering his life. And in many tears, she shared with me the heartache and the grief that she was storing up in her heart. And in that moment, on that sidewalk, in that place, while on a prayer walk, God ordained a divine kairos moment. Prepared in Kronos, fulfilled in kairos. The gestation of the moment, the birth of the moment. And brothers and sisters, we grind in the Kronos, but we step boldly and courageously into the Kairos moments, redeeming the time because the days are evil, taking advantage of the opportunities that God gives us, the windows that open. And after I shared this message in person with a group of people in Boise, I had one of the young ladies who texted me and said, my husband and I were in a restaurant and a friend began to come up and talk to us and shared some of the heartaches and the heaviness that he was carrying. And right on the spot, we asked him, can we pray for you? And he said, I would love that. And they prayed for him right there in the restaurant, stepping courageously, boldly, strategically taking the initiative to redeem that moment before the window closed. And brothers and sisters, God is ordaining divine moments for your life. The Kronos seasons are preparing you for Kairos moments, the ordinary of Kronos for the extraordinary when God opens a window and gives you an opportunity to step through in boldness and swipe up, sweep up, the treasure of that moment, to invest in a life, to lay up treasure in heaven by investing your time, your talent, your heart, your love into a person in the name of Jesus. And so number five, Kairos moments have to be grabbed. They have to be taken advantage of. They have to be seized. But I want to end with number six, and that is this. There are events, signs of the times, that we also, as children of God, need to understand so that we take the proper course of action with our lives. Let me explain this. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, there is a verse that reads this way. 
These are warriors, speaking of warriors who were part of David's army in the initial years of King David's reign in the Old Testament. The sons of Issachar, this reads, were men who understood the signs of the times, the kairos moments, with knowledge of what Israel should do. In other words, they were watching the moments, what God was doing, and taking corresponding wise action as a result of it. And they were lifted up, and they were, they were presented as examples to the whole nation, as men who understood the signs of the times, the kairos moments, what God was doing, and then were able to correspondingly take wise action. And that is precisely what we are called to do in these crazy days that we're living in. Now, I want to end with one prophecy of Jesus, spoken just before he was crucified. He looked down onto Jerusalem, and with tears bursting from his eyes, he said this, You, Jerusalem, and inferring the people of Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, talking about himself. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I want to finish by reading the last few verses in the book of Acts for this message. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, after Jesus has said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, or the times or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, he followed up by saying, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, your work is to get the message of me to the farthest reaches of the planet. Start at home, and then move out to the very outer edges. That's your job. That's your mission. Verse 9 says, After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. What an incredible moment. <laughs> Jesus feet leave this earth, leave the ground, and he's gone, disappearing before their eyes. And verse 10 says, and as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said to the men, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And they're referring to the second coming of Jesus, one of the last major Kairos moments, the second coming of Jesus. My dear friends, many, many, many churches are not teaching or preaching about the second coming of Jesus. We're talking about all sorts of feel-good topics. We're addressing all sorts of frivolous, frivolous issues, but we're not talking about the second coming of Jesus. This is the next great Kairos moment that is coming. 
And I want to share with you this. We need to understand the signs of the times because there have been major signs in our lifetime and just prior to our lifetime in this past generation that point to the fact that Jesus' coming is very near. And we need to live every day as if Jesus were coming back today. Our planning, our thinking, our strategizing, how are we living in such a way that we are ready for the second coming of Jesus? This world is not our home. This world has a death sentence upon it. Do not fall in love with this world because there is truly a death sentence on this planet. Jesus is coming. Now, I want to give you four signs that have to happen before Jesus can come back. And three of them have already happened. Number one, the Jewish people had to survive. In 70 AD, Titus invaded Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, destroyed the temple, and 95,000 Jewish people were taken to Rome as slaves, and the remainder were blown to the four corners of the earth. And to this day, you can find Jewish communities everywhere on the planet. But unlike any nation in the history of the world, after being blown up, it's like lobbing a hand grenade into a, into a watermelon patch. Boom! Blew the nation up <laughs> to the four corners of the earth. They survive as a nation to this day. The only nation to ever accomplish anything like that. It is the divine hand of God that has kept them together as a nation. So the first thing that had to happen is they had to survive as a nation to be able to say the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had to survive. They've survived pogroms and crusades and the Holocaust and so much persecution and adversity, but they still are here as a nation. But number two, they had to return to the land of Israel if they were going to say these words, because they were going to say these words in Jerusalem, which is in the land of Israel. In May, on May 14, 1948, mark it down, one of the most historic moments in all of time, one of the most phenomenal Kairos moments, May 14, 1948, after 1900 years of being dispersed to the four corners of the earth, <laughs> God put Humpty, Humpty Dumpty back together again, so to speak. Something that couldn't be done by the king's horses or the king's men. Nothing in the realm of humanity could do it. God supernaturally fulfilled Ezekiel chapter 37, and he restored the nation of Israel, not only as a nation, but brought them back to their original land, the, the land of Israel. In fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37 and many other passages, but that's the predominant one. So number two, the Jewish people had to return to their own land. They did that May 14th, 1948. But number three, the Jewish people had to return to Jerusalem to be able to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was looking down onto Jerusalem and addressing Jerusalem when he made this prophecy. And on June 6th, during the Sixth Day War, the Sixth Day War, when Israel was preparing for a massive attack 
by the nations surrounding them. Essentially 110 million Arabs against less than 3 million Jews surrounded on all sides. God accomplished something that was, some believe, the greatest victory in all of world history, the Six-Day War, when essentially, if you read the history, Israel won that war in the first six hours of the war. It took them six hours, essentially. It's called the Six-Day War, but they essentially won that battle in the first six hours of the war, a massive air attack that leveled the air forces of Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. And the war was essentially over in six hours. But that was June 5th. On June 6th, they entered Jerusalem, and after heavy fighting with the Jordanian forces, they took back the eastern half of Jerusalem, in which was the Wailing Wall and the future site of the temple that will be rebuilt. They took back Jerusalem, and the soldiers wept and danced and sang in the streets of Jerusalem for the first time in almost two millennium. So the third thing that had to happen is the Jewish people had to return to Jerusalem for those words of Jesus to come to pass. And they did that on June 6th, 1967, during the Six-Day War. The fourth thing that has to happen is that the Jewish people have to return to Yeshua, to Jesus, their Messiah. Now, we know this is going to happen as it's prophesied in Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. This will happen during the seven-year tribulation period. So for you and I who are listening, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing that has to happen for Jesus to take us in that great event called the rapture. Nothing has to happen. There is we are ready. We are ready. Live. Here's the point. Live every day. Live every day as if Jesus could come back because he could. And friends, when he takes us, when he snatches us away, we will be face to face with our maker, with our savior, with our king, with our Lord, nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball. We'll be with Jesus. This world is not our home. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. We're foreigners. The Bible calls us sojourners. We're just here for a blink of an eye and then we're gone. That Kairos moment is coming very, very, very soon. And the signs, if we're like the sons of Issachar, we see the signs and we understand what God is up to and we take the proper course of action. And what is the ultimate course of action? Acts 1.8, we are witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his second coming that could happen anytime. Brothers and sisters, that, that is our mission. That is our mission. That is what wisdom produces, is a message of Jesus, bold, courageous, unflinching, unceasing, unrelenting. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. So I want to end this message with that one simple declaration. Jesus is coming. Redeem the time. Take advantage of opportunities. People need to hear about Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his forgiveness. 
the gift of salvation, but that he's coming, and when he comes, time is up. Time is up. So that's all I've got for this message. Time is up for this message as well. I'm going to pray and then commit this message to Jesus and the Holy Spirit to work in your heart as you apply it during the Kronos seasons and the Kairos moments of your life. Lord Jesus, we lift this message as a gift to you. May it be embodied by those who are listening. May they hear, may they obey, may they respond, may their heart rise up, and may they exalt the great coming King, Jesus Christ, with their lives. Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you're coming again. We praise you for our future. We praise you for forgiveness. We praise you for our salvation. And Lord, anybody listening who doesn't have that assurance, may they just fall on their knees and cry out to you, and you will hear them, and you will forgive their sins, heal their heart, give them a new heart. They will be a new creation, new life, new destiny. And we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week. Ponder these words deeply. Let them change your life. Live for Jesus. Look for Jesus. And if he doesn't come back this week, we'll see you next week on the next teaching right here in the wrestling room. God bless you. Bye-bye.